All right, we're live, Sandhya. Welcome. Hey, Abhishek. Thank you so much. So let's get started. Um, I think we have a few people in the audience, but let's start with your background. Um, I think it'll be super useful for the audience to hear about your background and your journey so far, and we'll get into your book because that's the most interesting thing in this conversation. Uh, thanks. I do have a pretty unconventional background that people can clearly see if they go to my LinkedIn profile. I've kind of listed the last ten years of my life and. the different hats i've worn over the years uh i majored in chemical engineering in my undergrad and then i pivoted to management sciences so i came to the us for a masters in management sciences went to columbia university this was 2017 to 2019 and uh, since then i worked at salesforce for two and a half years as a product manager and then i quit that to currently um just pursue a different path So right now as you know my full time focus is getting to the finish line of publishing this book and building a community for skilled immigrants. I don't know what's going to happen beyond that but that's been the journey so far. You're writing a book right now which we'll talk about in detail but you wrote a book before that as well. What was that book about and how, what inspired you to start writing those books? That book was called Admitted and uh, it was about helping students get admitted into their dream universities abroad specifically. This was never supposed to be a book to be honest. I began working on this first week of January during the like this was right before the pandemic 2020. I began working on it and uh, every week me and my collaborator back then Saikishore we would feel like oh I think we should add this one more chapter because that's relevant. It felt like we were building um like we had blocks of lego and we were just putting that together to build a structure. and we ourselves didn't know how long the structure is going to go up to and eventually after 9 months of working on it it became a 360 page non-fiction book with um tons of illustrations inside and a resource on top of the book as well so yeah my point is that that was never supposed to be a book in the beginning but i think that's what happens when you identify a problem that's out there in the market you yourself don't know that it's a problem but once you start seeing it you want to uh try to do something more than what you expected the same story repeated for unshackled which you know maybe we'll talk about that but unshackled as well i never expected it to be the kind of book that i'm writing right now and what what do you mean by that you didn't expect it to be the book you're writing right now yeah um i thought i would just write a guide on the o1 visa that's all i thought i would do 6 7 months ago but yeah i think like things changed in the last it's been less than 6 months because i remember the email i sent that really changed my trajectory was on june 16th of this year so yeah it's been less than 6 months since that email was sent and that email changed the next 6 months and potentially my life as well since that email was sent to 3000 people and to just briefly talk about the setting This was a Friday afternoon, and uh, I'm on call with my mentor Rajesh Sethi. We were just talking, and I mentioned to him briefly that, you know, Rajesh, I have been wanting to work on a short guide on immigration for a while, but I haven't made any progress. And he very casually told me, "Oh, why don't you send an email to your email list and just ask them what questions do they have on immigration? What would they like to get answered?" Um, and when i say email list this is a very cold email list that i collected last year 
through a social media post, but then I completely forgot about them. So after seven months, they heard from me for the very first time. And I sent it to 2,500 people in total. Um, and these were mostly immigrants. So the email was titled, A Book on Immigration to Help People Like You. And inside the email, I just said a few lines and said, hey, this is Soundarya from seven months ago. Uh, you commented on my post. And I am here to tell you that I'm beginning to write a short book with a lawyer. What are your top three questions? Send them to me. The email was sent at 6 p.m. on a Friday. So the worst timing to send an email, really. I, I, I can't believe I did that. But I think within the next 24 or 48 hours, um, over 50% people opened the email. At, like in the end, 80% people opened the email. Like eight zero. That's that's almost unheard of when it comes yeah. to you know, email marketing. Um, and I got over 300 questions within the next few days from people. Just And these are not just one-line questions. People sent elaborate emails describing how they were frustrated with how the system is or how they've been in the backlog for 10 plus years and they really need another way or how they've been wanting to build a company for several years and don't know where to start. So I almost feel like I opened like a complaint booth or uh, a confession, not confession, like complaint booth where people could just talk about all the things that's frustrating them. And it was great for me to understand that this is a problem worth exploring. So how did that change your trajectory? So you started off writing, wanting to write a guide for Owen specifically, and then you had this flood of questions and feedback that came in through your emails. What did that then, how did you take that and incorporate that into your, into the book? So I guess maybe let's transition to the book, into the book a little bit. So it obviously talks about O1, but what else does it talk about? What is the overall goal of the book? O1 is one of 18 chapters in the book. So that's just to tell you that it's, it's one topic for sure, but there's several other topics that we cover. The overall goal of the book is to take people on a journey of First, making them understand why, given everything, the immigration system is really not in favor of skilled immigrants in this country. Uh, but it's very, very nuanced. So it's hard for me to, you know, strongly say this, but that's the first part of the book. The second part is where we tell people, hey, Congress might not pass any law that changes um, your immediate status in the next 10 years. But what can you do right now or in the next few years to take control of your future in this country? And so we're going to lay out uh, over 11 options. And when I say 11 options, uh, I'm talking about options to start a company on a visa, options to fast track their path to getting a green card, which, you know, most famously is the O1 and ED1, which we'll talk about, um, and options to... For example, um, switch to other visa types that's more relevant for them. Because I think most people don't even know of all the options out there. So just knowing that these are all the doors you can open. And these are the doors that's probably easier to open than the others. What do you want to do? And so part three of the book helps them figure out which door is best for them. And if the U.S. is not right for you, then these are the other countries you should be looking at to potentially move to. So 
um, yeah, that's kind of a journey that I want. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's, that's, that's a really good way to lay that out because I feel like, and in fact, right now, as we speak, and I'm sure you know this, but the Eagle Act is being voted upon. I think it was debated today will be voted upon later this week in the house, which I think is likely to pass in the house, but again, gets stuck in the Senate as has been the case for the past many years. And so a lot of people waiting in the green card backlog have been waiting for a solution for years now, waiting for legislative reform, but very unlikely that's going to happen anytime soon. And to your point, you can't wait for that. You you need to take things in your hand, you know, take control of the situation, figure out, okay, is there anything you can do? And there are a lot of options out there. And so I'm, I'm glad you're covering all that in the book. If you don't mind, let's maybe start with the first part, right? Or, or uh, one of the things you said, which is starting a company while you're on a visa, right? What are some of, um, if you can share, and obviously this is part of the book and people should go buy your book or pre-order the book right now, but what are things you can share in, in that in that realm? What can people do to start a company while they're on a visa today? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to, the information that we're sharing, Samir and I, uh, we're both co-authoring this, is out there. Obviously, the information that Samir shares with me from his 20 years of experience is, is not out there, but um, most information is out there. So having said that, let's say that you want to start a company on an H-1B right now. The first thing to understand is you can start a company on an H-1B. So anyone who tells you you cannot does not understand what they're saying. So that's just foundational. You can start a company. Yes. Um, and this is assuming that there's two scenarios here. One is where you're already employed. Let's say that you're working at Salesforce on an H-1B as a product manager. The other scenario is that you're still on an OPT and you haven't even gotten your first H-1B yet. So, you know, two archetypes of people. The things that you have to start with is what do I need to give the government to give me this H-1B? And there are a few things that the government looks for, for any H-1B petition, not just for building your own company. And that includes, first, the company has to be incorporated, registered. It has to exist in a database that they can find. So uh, apparently... I heard from, you know, research and also from Samir that a common RFE that people who try to start companies on H1B get is their company is not registered with something called the VIBE, um, VIBE network, V-I-B-E. So make sure that your company is registered on that network because that's the one that USCIS checks to see if you're on it. Second is um, viability. So viability means that your company is an actual legal legit entity that has a real reason to be a company and can sponsor someone to be an employee. So this could be in the form of showing that your bank account has enough money to support your salary for the next few years, but it's also showing business plans and showing like a pitch deck that shares um, what is the goal of the company, what is, what is it trying to solve and so on. Third is very important, uh, establishing employer-employee relationship. You know, this is very easy when you're working for, let's say that you file a petition to join a large company. You don't have to do much to show that. But if you're starting your own company and you want to file an H-1B through that, how can you show that you are an employee of the company? That 
that you, you know, you're not the only one working there, that like you're not the only boss. This is where it becomes tricky for solo founders versus founders that have a co-founder who's a citizen or has a visa status that's legal. Um, so assuming you're a solo founder, the way you can show that is by hiring a board of directors and giving them the right to outvote you on certain things. Uh, that just means that you should be able to be fired by the company that you're setting up, which sucks, right? I mean, if you're the founder, why do you want to give up that right to, to be fired from your own company? Um, and this just like, this is a great example to show the problems when you don't have a startup visa, you're trying to like fit a square peg into a circle hole and use all these other options. Obviously you'd want the startup visa so you can just apply through that. There is an alternative called the IEP. Not many people have heard of it. It's called the International Entrepreneur Parole Program. It's not a visa, but it's a temporary solution for people to um, live and work on their startup in the US. It's like the closest we have to something that's an actual startup visa. If anyone listening to this is actually interested, I would just say, like, definitely go and read about the IEP, um, Google it, understand the requirements. And if it makes sense, it makes sense to go for the IEP over trying to start on H1B, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, you know, here are a few like things that I've laid out, which you have to satisfy to essentially file a petition and be hired by a company that you set up. Have you come across people who have been able to successfully do that? So the option of starting your own company and having the, your own company sponsor your H1B visa, like, um, I explored that for quite a bit, but it seems like a very risky option. And I think it helps to know, hear about stories of people who've actually done that. So have you, as yeah. part of your book, as part of your research, come across people who've actually successfully done that? Yeah, there is tons of people who've done that. Oh, really? Um, I'm including their story, like two of their, two people's stories in my book, at least. Mm -hmm. One person who started on OPT and one person who started on H1P. So... Uh, it's very much possible. And Samir, for example, has worked with dozens of clients for whom he's filed an H1B for their startup. So that also, I think, goes to show this lack of um, not just knowledge, but lack of belief that it's possible to do this. Right. And uh, But yeah, it's, it's possible. And you know, I can talk more about their stories, but I think everyone's story is so uniquely different that I think what you should focus on doing, like if you're trying to do that is find a lawyer who is creative enough to work on this with you, who has done this for other people before successfully and uh, put together a case that makes sense on paper. I think that's, that's super key is to find lawyers who've successfully done that, who have experience with that, uh, that option, because I think a lot of lawyers out there who don't have experience will find a good reason, an easy reason to say, you know what, no, that's not possible or here are the risks and completely dissuade you from that, from that option. And I think it almost feels like there, we need a database out there of lawyers who are specialized in O1, EB1A or the option of uh, sponsoring, of applying for H1B under your own company to start your own company. Like that's, that's really badly um, needed out there. Yeah. One of the key components of the Unshackled community that I'm trying to build is that database essentially. Mm -hmm. of uh, wedding a few lawyers, talking to them first, understanding their success rates, how they approach immigration, like putting their names in this database. And something else that I think is 
especially necessary for people who are taking these creative routes is talking to other people who've done that as well. I'm trying to see, can we also build a mentorship program in the community where, let's say, you know, I get three people who've done this already to come be mentors. Uh, obviously, lawyers are the ones who will file your case. But even before you get to the filing stage, it's helpful to have someone tell you, this is how you incorporate. Yeah. The, this, these are the list of documents you should probably gather before you go to the lawyer and so on. We talked about uh, starting your own company while you're on H-1B or, or while you're on OPT. Sort of let's transition into the green card because O-1 is not strictly a path to green card. It is, but O-1 is more to just give yourself again more options. You can start your own company through an O-1 visa. So let's maybe talk about O-1 specifically and then we'll go to EB-1A. And again, it'll be super helpful to hear about at least one example of each, right? Examples that you've come across, stories that you've come across that really highlight to the audience what kind of profiles usually get approved for O-1 or EB-1A. Because I feel like a lot of people out there do qualify, but they just either their attorneys have told them, no, you don't qualify, or they just self-select out of the process because they think what they're doing is not that uh, noteworthy. We should talk about the O-1 because while it might not be a green card, it gives you so much more flexibility than the H-1B. Especially if you're a founder of a company, the biggest thing is O-1 does not require you to take a salary. I would think any founder who wants to really grow their company is not worried about taking a salary. They just want to reinvest all the money back into the business. And, you know, you're building a company right now, so you know... Exactly. In fact, in fact, you you don't want to take a salary. You're like, no, <laughs> I want to exactly. not take a salary because that capital, the scarce capital, is needed for the business. Right? Yeah, and unfortunately, on the H one, you're not just taking a salary. You're actually giving up quite a lot of money in taxes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the way the system is. So you have to follow that. You might be giving close to forty percent in taxes because there's employee taxes and there's employer taxes, and you're the employer. So you're paying both at the end of the day. In that regard, I think the O-1 is far better. It does not have an annual cap, which is helpful if you don't have an H-1 already. So no lottery system, nothing like that. And uh, the O-1 also gives you flexibility. Like you don't have to work with just one employer on an O-1. Theoretically, you can get an agent who represents you and you can work with multiple employers at once. It's quite rare that someone in tech does that though, because it's really meant for people who are actresses, singers, and dancers who have an agency that gets them freelance projects and gigs or designers even. It's rare that engineers would go that path, but you can. Like if you put up a compelling case and your lawyer is creative enough and smart enough to do that, you can do that. But the caveat is that Owen is very hard to get. It has eight categories. Nine, if you count the comparable evidence category, but really it has eight major categories. And if you satisfy three out of the eight, you will get the O-1. Almost everyone I know who got the O-1 would then immediately apply for the EB-1 within the next few years. Because the O-1 is for three years, it can be extended indefinitely after that. But you have to, every year, renew your visa. I've been told that renewing can feel like putting together a whole new application again. It's just so much effort to having to keep renewed every year. Um, so renewing, so most people when you renew, you have to put together, collect all the evidence again and present the evidence again. It's just not sending in a an application saying, okay, please renew my visa. You have to make the case again. You have to make the case that you're still extraordinary. What you're doing is actually having an impact in your field. So I 
haven't met someone so far who renewed their O-1 visa. Generally, people try to move away from it into an EB-1 if they can. Um, right. Or they might leave the country. You know, that's also possible. Do you have a case study that you can share with us of someone who they believed that they could not get the O-1, but they qualified for it and got that anyway? Yeah. The case study I share in my book is of uh, my good friend, Mayank Pansil. He is a software engineer right now. And when he applied for the O-1, he had exhausted all the three H-1B lottery chances. He had three or four months before which he had to be, he had to leave the country. He explored many options. I mean, honestly, O-1 was not even his priority. Uh, he explored options like going to Canada uh, at the office of the company and then coming back on an L-1 visa. Or he explored just leaving the country and going to Europe and work, working there instead. And then I remember he and I had a call sometime, May 2021. And I told him, hey, I think you could go for the O-1. You have some of the ingredients. Uh, and then he also heard about it from his lawyers. And then he decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And he put together an application in a matter of 30 days or like 45 days, which is incredibly stressful. You know, in the book, I talk more about the story. But in the 45 days, he had to not just put together the O-1 application, but also have a plan B and plan C if it didn't work out because he genuinely didn't think it would, it would have worked out for him. In the end, he got the O-1 on the 12th day, I think. So once you put in the application, you have 14 days premium processing if you go through premium processing. And he heard back on the 12th day, letting him know that he's been approved. Obviously, this is to say that he didn't have skills. The reason it worked for him is because, you know, think of the O-1 categories as it, it's very very well defined, all the eight categories. But if you don't fit that archetype, it becomes incredibly hard to get the O-1. However, if the things you've done in your life so far fit well with it, then it's quite easy to get it. So in Mayang's case, this he didn't plan to do any of the following things. But since high school, he's been judging competitions for robotics. He's been mentoring people. He was one of like the founding... or the first few engineers at Convoy, uh, this logistics startup, which eventually became a pretty you know, big company. Uh, and he had, he had a few press on some of the work he'd done so far. So these three things that he did essentially were three categories of the O-1. So mm-hmm. the way he'd lived his life until that point, even though he didn't intend to, actually he was creating good evidence for the O-1 visa. So it worked for him in the end. Um, but if, if you're not the kind of person who, for example, wants to go out and get press for your work, uh, or the kind of person who uh, cares about judging competitions, it's, it's just there is a misfit there. Um, and in that case, it might be harder for you because you might be starting from scratch. I personally am not in favor of the way it's currently defined, the eight categories, but it is what it is. Well, that's a really good example. And it sounds like in this case, he, he was uh, at that time a student, had some previous work experience, was a student, but as part of the previous work experience, had already judged, gotten, gotten, gotten some press, was part of a, a startup that became big. And so who, who sponsored his O-1B, uh, O-1? Was it an agent, an employer? Like, how did that work? Yeah, uh, he was not a student. He had been working for about two, two-ish years because he had exhausted all three H-1B attempts. Oh, as part of his employment, right, right, right. right. So he was on a STEM, STEM OBD, essentially, uh, yeah. working 
I guess he was yeah still on a student visa technically. His employer was Convoy, so Convoy, the company he was working at at that point, essentially told him that we're willing to file an O one for you if you're interested. It is expensive, so yeah. that also shows that Convoy really valued his presence and they wanted to keep him on if possible. The O one can cost anywhere between just a total cost can range from eight thousand to eighteen thousand. It really depends on the lawyer fee if you're going for premium processing uh, and so on and is he is he i'm assuming he's on his way to green card now yeah last i spoke he said he is uh, putting together his case for an eb1 okay which i mean it just makes sense because if you got the o1 from a judge's point of view uh, the judge who is looking at your eb1 application is like okay some another judge already thought this person was extraordinary so yeah. it just makes it easier however i also have the case study of somebody who got his o1 easily like within a few i think in 4 days he got the approval once he put in the application but it took him two denials two eb1 denials before he finally got his eb1 in the third time this is also a case study i'm including in my book once you know incredible person uh, nikhil tharan very precocious um very smart but in his case the eb1 didn't work out twice and then it worked and uh, yeah my point is that it's nice to look at these stories and think oh if it worked for him it's going to work for me but it's just helpful to have that a disclaimer that every case is unique so um, it's good that these stories open up doors for you but don't have high or low expectations like just first understand what the requirements are Yeah I mean of course it depends on a lot of factors it depends on your own profile but it frankly also depends on the lawyer that you engage and how well they are able to put your case together right it's just that's how it looks it's uh, part of this is making making the case part of it is storytelling and it really comes down to the experience the lawyer has in presenting your case in the right way so that it gets approved so selecting your attorney is super critical and that's why it's again it's important to choose someone who has experience in these categories right just has a lot of experience in o1 or eb1a or um, sponsoring h1b for a startup for example that is a yeah absolutely I, i still don't have a framework on how to choose a good lawyer something i want to develop as part of writing on chakul talk to at least four different lawyers before you finalize on one you'll know when you find the lawyer who's willing to go the extra mile and especially if you're trying for some harder paths someone who's willing to be creative and genuinely want to understand your story to see how they can fit into this context because as a lawyer to be honest at this point i've spoken to at least 12 lawyers and almost everyone tells me that the o1 and eb1 they don't really make much money from that in terms of the amount of hours they have to put in to get the visas and the rfp rates have been going up for these visas the last few years so it's an incredible amount of work for a lawyer to put together a 400 page application as opposed to an h1b very straightforward and they make a lot more money in terms of their time but they still like to work on it because it's a very intellectually challenging process for them to um help someone and really like an eb1 is a lawyer's way of granting someone freedom yeah for life <laughs> So uh, it's it's more philosophical reason why lawyers like working on them. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that um, the RFE rates have been going up. I just read a few days ago that if you are someone who's born who was born in India or China, then uh, you need, and if you want to apply for the EB1A green card, do it quickly because a lot of people are becoming aware of this option. A lot of people are starting to apply, and the backlog for that for EB1A is growing as well. <laughs> so if yeah, you're interested in this, you need to apply quickly. Generally, you, I can also get the government's point of view. Essentially, we're asking the government to read a 500-page application within 14 days and get back. And so what they tend to do sometimes is they'll just give you an RFE anyway because they need more time to mm -hmm. read the application. So, um, And so you know, some lawyers actually recommend not doing premium because otherwise it's like you're forcing the government to get back to you in 14 days. And uh, as the volumes keep going up, you know, they're short-staffed and they're going to keep issuing more RFEs to buy themselves more time at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about EB1A a little bit. Um, so maybe what will be helpful, so on there is again, maybe a case study, if you have another case study for EB1A specific, if you focus a little bit more on maybe Silicon Valley and, you know, product managers or engineers who have been part of software companies, and since there are so many in this category in Silicon Valley, again, a lot of people believe that they don't qualify for these visas for these for the EB1A green card, for example. So do you have a, another case study where someone who would be considered, quote, quote unquote, a regular person uh, unexpectedly was like, oh, no, you do qualify for the EB1A green card. Or, <laughs> or maybe maybe also talk about um how someone can work towards these right because you can right uh, so do you have any practical tips on how someone can start working towards getting press for themselves or becoming a judge for events because I, a lot of people don't know where to start if you haven't done that if you're not plugged into that ecosystem then you just don't know where to start first talking about like a quick case study uh one, once again a friend of mine got his eb1a in 2017 so at this point he was working as a AI research engineer at MetaMind, which was acquired by Salesforce. So, you know, he was one of the founding engineers of this startup, which got acquired by Salesforce. And, and so, and then he just became an employee at Salesforce. However, you know, in his case, he published, I think, two a few papers when he was studying at Stanford as a student and then after he was working at MetaMind. So one of the categories, the EB1A is publishing. So if you have uh, published papers, contributed any like original scientific contribution to the field, uh, all of that counts. Secondly, this is not something he intended, but one of his papers got picked up by MIT Tech Review and a few other publications. He wasn't working to get the press, but his manager was working for it. But, you know, long story short, he got press through that. And then finally, he played a critical role at MetaMind. So he was able to show that, hey, I've played a critical role in the past. Um, and having worked at Salesforce, you get paid a lot. So high salary is another criteria. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm saying all this just to give a sense of, like that was his case. For someone who's listening, who is, let's say that they're a product manager in tech. I think I would just, once again, take a hard look at the eight categories. And based on my understanding, high salary is something that many people in tech could satisfy uh, because, I mean, it is a bubble. People get paid a lot in tech, especially in some of the bigger companies. So it's a good chance. There's a good chance you're in the 90th percentile 
when you file. This is where an interesting lawsuit was filed several decades ago, honestly. I won't go into the details of the lawsuit, but the the result of the lawsuit was the judge ruled in favor of the immigrant, not the USCIS. And essentially the judge said that when you're comparing salaries, for example, you cannot compare the salary of a Google engineer just with other Google engineers, because in that case, it might not seem like it's different. You have to compare it with everybody who's working as an engineer in that location. Mm-hmm. So it's very, yeah, it's worth, it's worth knowing these nuances because your lawyer sometimes might not. So you might have to tell your lawyer, hey, make sure you're showing the comparison properly. So that's one category. Second, I've heard second easy category is judging, uh, especially for engineers, maybe for PMs as well, is yeah, going and judging hackathons, um, going on panel discussions and uh, being on the admissions committee, maybe for uh, a scholarship or a fellowship, or even being on the promotions committee at your company. Like essentially, you want to be a judge in something that regards you as an expert in that field. I always say like, start very small and just reach out to your alma mater and ask if you can judge a competition there. And then slowly build your profile from there. It's not a category that honestly I have done. I've not really judged many things in my life. This is secondhand research and evidence. That's second category. Uh, Third, I would say original contribution is a hard category, but if you've published papers, if you have uh, worked on a product at work, which had a significant impact on the company's users, that's also original contribution. So if you're a senior PM on a team that, for example, launched Google Maps, then if you can show that you were critical for that happening, then you you satisfy two categories at once, original contribution and critical capacity. So it's worth understanding these categories in depth and then trying to start matching because you might satisfy more than what you think. And the rest you can fill by talking to other people and slowly working your way there. That's super helpful. Um, and do you do you cover some of these practical tips in your book? Will you be covering them in your book? Um, yeah, my book is it's entirely practical tips only. But yeah, we'll be covering this with case studies and also just showing examples of other people who've done that and how they've done that. But, you know, I also feel like while we're trying to cover these things, I'm starting to feel since I'm writing the book right now that there is a lot to talk about in immigration. And for the sake of keeping the book not a thousand pages, we're going to have to cut down rigorously and uh, keep it to like under 350 pages. So the book should be a starting point. But if people want to actually go into the EB1 route, then they should absolutely try to uh, you know, talk to a lawyer or for example, join a community. It doesn't have to be the unshackled community. There's other Slack Slack groups like, for example, my good friend, Aditi Paul, uh, she got her EB1B uh, last year or a few years ago. And she started this free Slack community. Anyone can come join and help each other. So like joining communities like that and meeting other people is should be the second step before you try to talk to a lawyer. And is that community focused on EB1? Or is it a yes, general? That's, a, that's specifically just for EB1. That community okay. came up. Uh, okay. And I'm sure there's O1 communities as well. Legal Pad, 
is a company which was acquired by Deal, but yeah, LegalPad specializes in O1 for founders. I'm sure they have a community specifically for O1 aspirants. I'll, I'll ask them. We are, we are talking to them next week. So I'll, I'll ask oh, cool. them. <laughs> yeah, you should ask them. If they don't, they probably should build one. But yeah, the Unshackle community, one of my goals also is to create these sub groups of people yeah. who are in similar boots. I think what's needed in these categories, I think the what is getting out there. I'm glad a lot of people are getting to know about what the O1 category is or what the EB1 category is. What is the criteria? How many criteria do you need to satisfy? But I think what's really missing is almost a practical guide on how to satisfy those criteria. Okay, you don't satisfy them today, but how can I practically step-by-step go about I think what you said, uh, one of the tips you gave was reach out to your university, your alma mater and ask them, like, hey, what, do you have anything coming up? I've I've been working in Google on this, on AI, and I, I would love to come and judge a competition on AI, for example. I think those those are the kinds of practical, easy to get to tips that are really needed yeah. to help people understand how they can build up that profile, build up that case study. So either through your book or through the community or another community. And if you, by the way, if you... If you send me the links to those other communities, I'll include them in the show notes so people can get to them Absolutely. as well. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, that'll be super useful. Can I mention one more resource for people? Yeah. I came across this recently myself. There is a startup called Passrate, which also focuses on O1 EB1 specifically for founders. They put together an EB1 resource database. So they just have resources for things like conferences you could attend or press you can get and so on. So that's like a resource hub is something, you know, I'm also hoping to slowly keep building with crowdsourced efforts, but if someone wants it right now, they should go there and purchase this EB1 resource hub. It's some $30, $40 last time I saw it. Okay. That's, um, again, if you can send me the link, I'll include that in the show yeah, notes. Definitely. That'll be super helpful. So when, when is the book launching? It's going to come out in March, April of next year, sooner. My hope right now is that there's over there's over 700 people who have pre-ordered it so far and for the people who pre-ordered my priority is to get it to them first so to them as of now my hope is to get it by the end of april but we're also you know in the middle of a pandemic with a war and then supply chain is off the it's it's all crazy i hope nothing changes much but end of april but the actual launch of the book i don't think will happen until uh, probably late may public launch and so, Sandhya, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? First, LinkedIn is the easiest way. I think I'm pretty active there, uh, post regularly. So they can reach out to me on LinkedIn with a question. Second is they can also email me at hi, H-I, hi, at curiousmaverick.com. Uh, I mentioned the email in my LinkedIn profile. So they can ask long-form questions there. Yeah, I think those are two main resources. If they'd like to check out Unshackled, it's readunshackled.com. Well, excellent. Anything else you want to say to the audience? Any any way they can uh, support you and what you're doing? Immigration is one of those topics that you don't really think about it until you have to think about it. And when you start thinking about it, it's the only thing you can think about. It takes up your entire mind space, especially if you're stuck in a position where you got laid off or where you have 90 days before something, the clock ends. So my hope is people are more prepared for something like this. Um, like these layoffs were a great example of what happens when you're not very prepared. Uh, it's not that anyone who got laid off, it's not their fault, but I think it just shows that being prepared helps. So 
I just hope that regardless of my book or not my book, just being more prepared and understanding options is a good place to start. Yeah, I hope I hope people uh, realize that layoffs or just even the green card backlog. I mean, you're going to be waiting in the backlog for decades, right? It's it's um, what 15 years now. You will rise to 20 years soon, and you have to start understanding these options. And even if you have to spend the next two years, three years preparing your case for EB1A, that's worth it versus having to wait 20 years to get your green card. So you, everyone you needs to understand they- these options. Yeah, and everyone I've spoken to who got their O1EB1, all of them say that might be survivor's bias, but for them, the O1EB1 essentially acted as a catalyst in their career. That's mm-hmm. that's what it's really doing, right? It's, it's making you do things that you otherwise would not in a very fast way. So it's not a bad thing at all. It's actually very good for you. Oh, that's true. That's true. I never thought about it that way. I mean, the pursuit of an EB1A or the O1 can actually force you to do things, get also, get outside outside of your comfort zone and do things that actually will be an accelerant to your career. That's a really useful insight. That's awesome. Yeah, that's the theme I see across all the stories people I've been talking to. Thank you so much for asking all these thoughtful questions. No, thank you for everything that you're doing, Sondere. I think the book is exciting. The approach that you're taking with the book, making it very visual, very accessible, very friendly to the audience, I think is super, is what is needed in today's day and age when we are surrounded by so much noise and Kudos yeah. to you for everything that you're doing and uh, good luck with everything. We are, we're looking forward to your, your book and the release. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you.